ladies and gentlemen, one of the truly great spokesmen for the Americanist cause, Mr. Dan Smoot. Thank you very much. Thank you. Does this sound all right to you? Good. Thank you. Here we are again, some of us, 15 years later. 15 years after the 10th anniversary, that is. I wonder what this town will look like and how big the crowd will be when Birchers have their centennial. A third of a century ago, to be precise, on February 9, 1950, at a Republican Party rally in West Virginia, Senator Joseph McCarthy alleged there were communists in the State Department. That should not have been a big surprise. It was already widely known that our government had often sacrificed the interests of America and of other nations to the interests of the Soviet Union. But somehow, McCarthy's mild accusation touched a raw nerve. The liberal establishment pounced on McCarthy with screaming invective. That convinced him that he'd hit upon a role he was destined to play. He never tried to organize or lead an anti-communist movement. He just concentrated on what he conceived to be his job as a concerned senator. But the furor of the liberals made his name a clarion call for millions. At that time, the blame for communism in government fell upon Democrats, because they had been in control since 1933. So the McCarthy charges seemed a prelude to the 1952 presidential election. The real excitement and the fateful choice of 1952, however, was not the general presidential contest between a Republican and a Democrat, but primary and convention efforts by conservative Republicans to select an anti-communist candidate. They failed. But the general public did not realize that. I believe that most of the millions who voted for Eisenhower in 1952 thought they were voting to remove communist influence from American affairs. Between February 1950 and Election Day 1952, Republicans generally stayed away from Joe McCarthy. They did not help him, but they did not criticize him very much either. They knew that every time McCarthy mentioned communism, he was improving Republican chances to win the White House. A chief campaign promise of the Eisenhower Republicans was that Eisenhower would get the rascals out of the State Department, meaning, of course, those whom McCarthy had been talking about. The rascals were never removed. And in 1954, the Eisenhower administration and the Republican-controlled Senate did something that Truman and the Democrats had never tried to do. The Republicans arranged a formal Senate censorship of Joseph McCarthy for his investigations of communism. The era of McCarthyism, so-called, died that day, although Senator McCarthy kept trying until his death three years later. 
Instead of being a solution for the problem of communist influence in America, Eisenhower was a major part of the problem. Millions who had been superficially informed of the communist threat and momentarily aroused voted for Eisenhower to put things aright and forever thereafter assumed that Eisenhower had done just that. Many who had supported anti-communist activities in the brief McCarthy period became virulent anti-anti-communists after McCarthy's fall. Eisenhower, having given assurance that the problem of communism in the United States had become trivial, and the Senate having rebuked McCarthy for investigating communism, many former anti-communists, along with a mass of liberals and communists, dismissed as crackpots and lunatic fringers the patriots still trying. When Senator McCarthy died in 1957, I actually heard former supporters of his say they were glad because all the turmoil about communism could at last end. There remained some fine patriotic organizations, but most had specialized projects. Bob Welch was writing and publishing One Man's Opinion and burning it up, up enough energy for ten men, traveling, speaking, holding conferences with individuals and small groups, working out details for doing the impossible, founding an organization to cover the whole front of patriotic causes for all patriots. Mr. Hunt's Lifeline, Dean Mannion, and I all had nationally distributed once-a-week radio programs, but none of us had full national coverage. I also had a weekly television program. My broadcasts were commercially sponsored, and I had outlets from coast to coast and in a majority of states. But my audience once a week was small in comparison with what each network newsman has every day. The networks would not sell time for my broadcasts. Hence, I had fewer station outlets and none of the promotion and regular primetime scheduling that the TV networks give their commentators. Limited as it was, however, mine was the only Americanist, or as I called it, constitutionalist television program in existence. I talked and wrote enough about the evils of communism that many considered me monomaniac on the subject. From beginning to end, however, constitutionalism and not anti-communism was the bedrock of my program. Curbing the influence of communism by the exclusive activity of explaining its malignity and naming the communists does not work well. Generally, it is impossible to find legal proof of a person's membership in the Communist Party, even by the FBI. And generally, the people who do most of the important work for communism in the United States are not members of the Communist Party. It was not communists, but good old Ike and his modern Republicans who dealt the heaviest blow against the anti-communist patriotic movement in the 1950s. The United States Supreme Court has done more to subvert American constitutional government than all communists, fascists, and other evil subversives have ever managed to do. This has happened, perhaps, less from subversive intent than from ignorance of our constitutional system. Lawyers seldom study the Constitution. 
certainly those that I've known, they study federal court opinions about the Constitution. And the judges who handed down those opinions that the lawyers study were themselves not required to make an exhaustive study of the Constitution. They studied opinions of previous courts. The communist idea of the necessity of total power, total governmental power, with enough power to do and for, to and for the people whatever government officials deem desirable, whether the people like it or not. This idea, more effectively disseminated in our country by non-communists than by communists, is destroying our constitutional republic. This communist idea of the necessity of total government is identical in some basic aspects with the central ideology of Roosevelt's New Deal, Truman's Fair Deal, Eisenhower's Modern Republicanism, Kennedy's New Frontier, Johnson's Great Society, and so on. I felt in the 1950s, and I still feel, that perhaps the best weapon against this kind of assault upon our country is a widely disseminated knowledge of constitutional government, as provided for by the Constitution not as practiced by courts, congresses, and presidents. I did as much of that disseminating as possible, taking each week an important topic involving governmental action and discussing it from the strict constitutionalist viewpoint. I think I'm the only one who ever did that regularly on television, and that's too bad, because the TV public responded well to that kind of news analysis. In those days, I got a heavy mail from people who listened to all my broadcasts, read everything I wrote, and passed my materials on to others, eventually writing to me to ask, now what can I do? Trying to find a sensible question, uh, answer for that question was one of the most nagging problems I had. And that, as I remember it, is how the patriotic movement in the United States was 25 years ago today. Imagine my joy and relief when my friend, Bob Welsh, a brilliant man and patriot of integrity, accomplished the impossible. From then on, I answered the what can I do question by replying, get in touch with the John Birch Society, where you will have access to the best information available and can find all the involvement you can stand in the company of fine patriots. Individual patriots and small groups did the best they could, but Bob Welsh organized patriotic effort into a permanent national crusade. I never tried to imagine what conditions might be today without the John Birch Society, but I have no doubt that the educational work of the society and the political work of its members were indispensably involved in sending to Washington a small core of the finest men ever to sit in the Congress. And among those excellent men, I, of course, include Steve Sims, the Crane Brothers, and as you all know, Larry MacDonald. In his last letter to me, Larry said, <clears throat> To be frank, Dan, it is a little lonely in Congress being a strict constitutionalist. <clears throat> And being a Democrat to boot causes considerable ridicule and even scorn on occasion. 
To me, these hurdles are not too high, end quote. And indeed, they were not. I agree with you that we should remember Larry MacDonald, making sure that we keep in sharp focus what Larry was. He was, as Scott eloquently pointed out this afternoon, the greatest anti-communist leader in the world. But he was more than that, as Scott indicated. He was not just an anti-communist. He was a statesman of the first order. Larry did not say to me that he was ridiculed and scorned in Congress for being an anti-communist, but for being a strict constitutionalist. At the present low point in the degradation of our constitutional republic, strict constitutionalism is the most hated position that a man in public life can take. Larry knew that, but he took it, and he never deviated from it because he was a statesman of the first order. Why is American constitutional government so hated? Because it is the exact opposite of the communist and liberal idea of the necessity of total government, the reigning ideology of our time. What is strict constitutionalism? As you know, Larry brilliantly answered that question in his book, We Hold These Truths. The Constitution, written in 1787, embodied the uniquely American concept of God, man, and government that Jefferson had written into the Declaration of Independence in 1776. God created man and gave him certain inalienable rights. Man creates government not to be his master, but to be a servant whose task is to preserve for men the blessings of liberty which they had from God before they ever made a government. All governing powers in a great nation intended to last cannot be defined and bound by a constitutional contract as if in a straitjacket. Many forces are forever changing society and its needs. Yet if you give a national government discretionary power to do whatever governing officials claim to be needed, officialdom will eventually enslave the people, always under the pretext of taking care of them. A dilemma. But the Founding Fathers successfully flanked that dilemma. They realized that most of the governing power needed in America already existed and was in proper hands at the state and local levels. So they wrote a constitution, leaving that state power structure largely untouched to do most of the governing, denying the federal government all of the undefined and therefore stretchable powers to intervene in the lives of people, leaving those dangerous powers to be exercised, if at all, by state and local governments. The constitution created a new federal government and put it in a straitjacket by specifying and limiting its powers and functions. The federal government was not given any power to do anything not clearly authorized by the Constitution, not even if the people wanted to, unless the people properly amend the Constitution to give the federal government whatever additional power they wanted to have. Afraid that this might not be enough, the first Congress elected under the Constitution proposed a group of amendments 
ten of which were ratified in 1791. They are called the American Bill of Rights, which give the people no rights. They make no promise of governmental help to the people. They put no controls whatever on state or local governments. Our Bill of Rights deals with only one concern, limiting the power of the federal government. And it ends with a double reminder in the Eighth and Ninth, in the Ninth and Tenth Amendments that all powers and rights not mentioned in the Constitution are left in the states beyond the reach of the Federals. The Federal Government was given ample opportunity, uh, authority to conduct foreign affairs, defend the nation against foreign enemies, help states suppress internal violence if requested, coin money, guarantee a common national citizenship, and prohibit states from interfering with trade and travel across state lines. Beyond that, the Federal Government had relatively little power to do anything to and for the people. On the other hand, state governments had unlimited power to make any kind of social or political experiment with the people and their property if the people allowed and if the experiments did not specifically violate some provision of the federal constitution. If a state government went too far or not far enough in taxing and regulating and providing welfare, it would lose productive citizens and enterprises to other states. Competition would force state governments to correct their worst errors and would keep the people always searching to learn how much government meddling in the private lives of people is necessary for order and prosperity in a free society. That is American constitutional government, the greatest of all American inventions. That kind has never existed anywhere else on earth, though it did for many years inspire people all over the world. Yet through the years, officers of the three branches of our federal government, all having been sworn to uphold the Constitution, have repudiated and perverted the Constitution. Many think that court perversions of our Constitution are beyond repair, except by constitutional amendment. <clears throat> They're wrong. A Congress of strict constructionists, strict constitutionalists, would enact a law prohibiting federal courts from accepting, on appeal or otherwise, cases arising from state or local laws. The Congress gives, the Constitution gives Congress plenary power to do just that. And Congress would restrict their jurisdiction in federal matters to the judicial power specified in the Constitution. All existing federal court decisions not made under congressional regulations or under constitutional grants of judicial power would be declared, declared invalid. A constitutionalist Congress would terminate as quickly as possible all federal programs for which there is no intended power grant in the Constitution, and which therefore are prohibited by the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. 
As each federal program terminates, there should be a simultaneous across-the-board reduction in federal income taxes totaling per annum the amount that the program had been costing. With regard to foreign affairs and national defense, what should be done should be easy to do. We should get out of the UN and get the UN out of the US, of course. We should stop the flow of our tax money for all UN operations. We should stop foreign aid and all foreign lending of our tax money through the Export-Import Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, or otherwise. Total savings, total savings from all of these should be passed on to taxpayers by simultaneous tax reductions. Americans should never again meet communists for disarmament negotiations. Never. <laughs> Lying is and for 50 years has been policy with communists. They have broken every major treaty they have ever made with us while we have endangered the life of our nation to keep our commitments to them. American aid in such varied forms and in such volume as would require a shelf of books to tell about, has kept the evil Soviet system afloat for 50 years. If we refuse to give it any more help, it might eventually sink and drown. <clears throat> if we would return to constitutional government and to sanity in defending our homeland, America, after the shakedown of readjustment, would enter a brilliant period of creative activity and unprecedented prosperity. The Soviet Union might dwindle away as a threat to world peace and other nations, unable to fight expensive wars without our money and equipment, might also have a chance of finding peace and prosperity. With regard to abandoning our mad policy of surrender and suicide and to erecting something like the high frontier defensive system that would actually protect our own homeland against Soviet attack, a system of this kind is feasible now, te technologically and financially, and within a time frame of three to six years. It would be feasible now politically if the people were moved to show massive public demand for it. I beg you to read We Must Defend America by Lieutenant General Daniel O. Graham. 114 pages of the most hopeful and reassuring information about national defense that I have ever seen since we first started helping the Soviets acquire the means of destroying us. There's no cause for pessimism as long as there is a remnant of patriots who hold aloft the principles on which our greatness was built. There is such a remnant, and you are it. You are the ones who made it possible for such men as Larry MacDonald to get seated in the United States Congress. Larry's book, We Hold These Truths, ends with these words, quote, 
A House of Representatives controlled by constitutionalists and supported by the people could restore constitutional government even if the Senate, the President, and the Supreme Court fought it all the way. Only the House can initiate revenue bills. The House all by itself could not shoot the food stamp program, but the House all by itself could starve it to death." End quote. It would take 218 strict constitutionalists in the House to restore the constitutional system. The system which under God enabled earlier Americans quickly to convert their portion of this backward hemisphere into the land of promise, the wonder of the world. Indeed, let us remember Larry MacDonald by doing the impossible, seeing to it that his great work continues until the American Constitutional Republic again stands fearless and free, independent and indomitable, a beacon of hope for all mankind. Thank you. Thank you, Dan Smoot.